This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Father, we thank you again for your grace. Thank you for the grace that was demonstrated on the cross that we just heard sung so beautifully about. We thank you that the veil was torn, that your spirit is now unleashed, and that your spirit can empower us for life, all because of your love, the sacrifice of Christ, his resurrection from the dead, that new creation has begun, and it can begin in us. We thank you for your amazing grace, scandalous grace, that the world did not understand then and often does not understand now. We pray that you would help us to understand it today and to respond accordingly. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 2. If you're new today, we are walking through the gospel of Mark and we are in chapter 2. And we're going to look at verses 13 through 17 today and talk about the scandal of grace. The scandal of grace. Mark 2, and let's begin looking at verse 13 and follow along in your copy of God's Word. The Bible says of Jesus that he went out again by the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. One of the things that made the early church so compelling and so attractive was the compassion of the early Believers. In 260 AD, a terrible plague swept across the Romans, Roman Empire. People were dying by the thousands every day. And everyone who was well wanted to get away from those who were sick. Everyone, that is, except the Christians, who in compassion stayed and ministered and cared for their neighbors, even at the risk of their own life. Historian Rodney Clark, Rodney Stark has written a book called The Rise of Christianity, and he quotes from an eyewitness at the time named Dionysius, who described the behavior of the early Christians in a time of plague in this way. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need, and with them departed this life serenely happy, 
For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The heathen behaved in the very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the road before they were dead and treating unburied corpses as dirt. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. Now, ironically, the survival rates among the Christians were greater because many of the Christians who stayed and took care of these people got sick and the ones who made it through developed immunities. But what a picture of the gospel this is. Because what did Jesus do? Jesus took our sickness, the sickness of our sin, upon himself so that we could be healed. Died in our place and rose again so that we can have life. You know, the cross of Christ is about a grace that the world doesn't understand. A grace that the world considers to be scandalous. And, and even already in Mark, we've seen the scandalous grace of Christ. Jesus does what was considered to be a scandal in his culture in that he reaches out and touches a man with leprosy. And today, we're going to see him demonstrate scandalous grace by showing love for those with spiritual leprosy. Moral leprosy. Let's talk about the scandal of grace. What do we see in this text? First of all, scandalous grace seeks the lost. Verses 13 and 14. The Bible says he went out again by the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Now, Levi is the man who becomes Matthew, who wrote the first gospel. Matthew was the name that Jesus gave him when he became a follower of Jesus. Matthew means gift of God. But at this point, he's Levi, and most of Levi's neighbors didn't consider Levi to be a gift from God. <laughs> they considered him more like a, a gift from hell. Because Levi, who became Matthew at this point, is a Jewish man who is collecting taxes for the Roman government, who is occupying their country. And so his, his neighbors considered him to be a, a traitor, a collaborator with the Romans. He's, he's, he's working for the Roman government against his own people. And so he was not only a collaborator, but he was also considered to be a crook because these tax collectors were notorious for ripping people off. And so here's Levi who sits every day at his tax booth Bilking people, extorting from people. And you can better believe that every person who approached him and was required to pay taxes 
treated him like a piece of dirt. And then he met Jesus. Now, almost certainly there had been prior contact between the two before this day. Levi has heard about him. Levi has probably heard him preaching. He's probably seen him heal people. And something's happening within his heart. Something he can't even describe. He's feeling his heart becoming strangely warmed. He's feeling himself drawn to Jesus. And so on this day, when he sees Jesus approaching, and he hears Jesus say, follow me, Levi does the unthinkable. He feels himself rising from his tax collector's chair and following Jesus. And he wasn't just following him to go have a conversation. He wasn't just following him to to, to hear him go preach a sermon. He was leaving his whole life behind. He was leaving his profession. He was leaving everything about his prior life behind to become a follower of Christ. When you read the New Testament, true faith in Jesus results in following Jesus. When you read the New Testament, the New Testament doesn't even know anything about people who make some sort of a shallow profession of faith or, you know, just say a sinner's prayer or whatever, and it doesn't make any difference in their lives. That's just foreign to the New Testament. When we exercise true saving faith in Christ, we follow Christ. Now, none of us follow Him perfectly. Nevertheless, true faith results in in, in following. Now, what else do we see here about Jesus? We see that Jesus seeks people. You know, hundreds of years after the true Gospels were written, there was a, a cult called the Gnostics, and they wanted to reinvent Jesus. They wanted to, to reinvent Jesus to kind of suit their own philosophy. And so they wrote some false Gospels, they were found, many of them were found in 1945 at a place called Nag Hammadi in, in Egypt. And it's very interesting. The Jesus of the Gnostic Gospels is sort of a, a sage who dispenses good advice. But these false gospels are mainly just sort of collections of sayings. And so they sort of, these false gospels sort of picture Jesus as sort of a talking head Jesus. Who sort of sits back and dispenses advice to people. That's not the Jesus of the Gospels. The Jesus of the true Gospels is not talking head Jesus. He is seeking Jesus. He's out there loving people. He's out there mingling and seeking people. People like Levi. People like us. One of the most famous images that Jesus gives us in the parables is of the shepherd seeking the lost sheep. Seeking the one that is lost. Pursuing him. And and when he finds this lost sheep, what does the shepherd do? He picks it up. Puts it on his shoulders. Carries it home. But here's what makes this so scandalous. Levi didn't look much like a lost sheep to his neighbors. He, He was more like a wolf. 
And so Jesus not only seeks people, but we see here that Jesus seeks outcasts. Sometimes that means seeking someone like the man who had leprosy, who Jesus touched in compassion. That was a scandal. As Jesus reached out and, and, and touched this, this person who was an outcast for physical reasons. Levi is an outcast for moral reasons and, and, and spiritual reasons. But Jesus sees him not for who he is, but for who he could be by grace. Many years ago, there was a block of marble that was brought into the city of Florence, Italy, by workmen. It was mined from the, the, the famous uh, mines of, of Carrara. And, uh, but, 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 but this particular block of marble had a lot of flaws in it. And so the sculptors of Florence looked at this block of marble with, with all of its, its flaws and they wanted nothing to do with it. All except one. There was one particular sculptor who looked at this block of marble and in his mind, he didn't see the flaws. He had a vision for what it could be and should be. For two years, he did nothing but work on this. On January 25th, 1504, it was unveiled. And as these artists gathered around, including da Vinci, and this veil was dropped, their jaws dropped. Because this statue that Michelangelo had been working on, David, was one of the grandest pieces of art they had ever seen. And remains so to this day. See, Jesus sees Levi. Jesus sees us. The way that Michelangelo saw that block of marble, he sees us not just as who we are, but, but, but who we could be and should be by grace. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship. God is like a master sculptor, an artist who is, is forming us and shaping us. By His grace. Are there people in your life, maybe friends, or maybe even family members, relatives, that you consider to be sort of spiritually useless? You think, what on earth could ever be made of their lives? Get them in front of Jesus. Last week, we, we looked at a, at a, at a man whose his friends come and, and they do anything they can. They dig a hole in the roof in order to lower him and get him in front of Jesus. Because they believe that in the presence of Jesus, something beautiful can happen. What are we willing to do to get our lost friends and family members in front of Jesus? So that Jesus can begin to go to work on them. Don't write anyone off. They're not useless. Thank God he didn't write any of us off. He saw us for who we could be. By grace. 
So scandalous grace seeks the lost, but not only that. We see here that scandalous grace befriends the lost. And this is really scandalous. The Bible tells us in John 1.14 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's talking there about the incarnation. God became man. But not only did God become man... But when he became a man, he he practiced an incarnational ministry. Jesus was not only incarnated, but he practiced an incarnational ministry, which means that he hung out with us. He lived among us. He did life among us. And he didn't just come for the people who seemed to have it together, as if any of us really do. He came for those who most certainly didn't have it together. All of us, in other words. Look at verse 15. The Bible says, As he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. It is hard for me even to convey to you how scandalous this was in that culture. For Jesus, as a religious man, to share table fellowship with and to eat with people like the people that he was eating with was just simply not done. Good people considered this kind of behavior to be scandalous. The people that Jesus is sitting at table with here were not occasional transgressors of God's law. They were habitual transgressors. We're talking about people like prostitutes, people like tax collectors. We're talking about just irreligious people, the most immoral people, riffraff, pariahs. And Jesus isn't just befriending one of them or sharing a meal with one of them. Mark goes out of his way here in verse 15 to talk about the fact that this was part of his life. There were many tax collectors and sinners who were reclining with Jesus. For there were many who followed him. Jesus was called a friend of sinners. And he never denied it. Because he was. And they're all reclining around the table with him. This motley crew. There's a great story about President Theodore Roosevelt's father, Theodore Roosevelt Sr. He's a Christian man. And he had a great compassion for children, the street children that he would see in New York. He was very wealthy and so... One day he invited some of his wealthiest friends over to his mansion in Manhattan. And so they were all socializing and mingling before dinner and eating sumptuous hors d'oeuvres and having a great time. And then the hour came for dinner. And with a flourish, Theodore Roosevelt Sr. opened the door to his grand dining hall. And there sitting around the table were these dirty street kids. The streets of New York. 
dirty, many of them disabled. And he looked at his wealthy friends and he said, we have been given the means to help. What are we going to do about it? But see, the kids who were sitting around that table were sort of natural objects of sympathy. I mean, they were in that situation through no fault of their own. The people that are sitting around this table with Jesus have made terrible life choices. They have made themselves into moral and spiritual outcasts by the choices that they've made in their lives. And good people wanted nothing to do with them. They were not looked upon as objects of sympathy by good religious people. And you can see that coming out here in verse 16. Look at it. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners. What comes to mind when you hear the word Pharisee? You think of some self-righteous prude. You think of a religious snob. And above all, here's what we think when we hear the word Pharisee. We think... Somebody not like me. Here's what we got to understand. They were a lot like us, okay? Pharisees, in, in their culture, were not looked upon as the bad guys, the way that we think of them today. They were looked upon by their neighbors as the good guys. They were patriots. That's one of the reasons they despised people like Levi so much, because he was cooperating with the Roman government. The Pharisees were patriotic Jews. They would never collaborate with the Romans. And so they were viewed by their culture as, 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 as upstanding patriots. They were very moral people. They looked around and saw the, the cesspool of sin in their culture. And they, they wanted no part of that. They, they, wanted, they, wanted, their, they wanted their culture to, uh, to, to, be, to, to, to improve. And, and they, they, they looked around and they saw the, the Levi's of the world and, and all the sin around them. And they, they, they didn't want their culture to be like that they wanted it to be to be better and so they were they were they were religious they were very moral people here's where they went wrong they not only hated sin they hated sinners they not only wanted to separate themselves from sin but they wanted to separate themselves from sinful people. The word Pharisee means separate. And it's not just that they wanted to live pure and holy lives themselves in the sense of being separate from sin. They wanted to be separate from sinners. They didn't want anything to do with them.
Now look, philosophically, we would never put ourselves, we would never say that, you know, I mean, we say it all the time, you know, hate sin, love sinners. But what do we do in practice? Because sometimes we may not be philosophical Pharisees, but we can be practical Pharisees. Kent Hughes puts it this way. Perhaps none of us espouse such pharisaical beliefs. In fact, we loathe them. But many of us live them out. Nevertheless, we come to Christ, and in our desire to be godly, we seek out people like us. Ultimately, we arrange our lives so that we are with non-believers as little as possible. We attend Bible studies that are 100% Christian. A Sunday school is 100% Christian. Prayer meetings that are 100% Christian. We play golf and tennis with Christians and eat dinner with Christians. We have Christian doctors, Christian dentists, Christian plumbers, Christian veterinarians. Even our dogs are Christian. You get the point. Well, Jesus was not like this. I mean, yes, Jesus invested in his disciples, his followers. He spent lots of quality time with them. But Jesus spent a lot of time with lost people, irreligious people. He shared meals with them. He hung out with them. He befriended them. You know, it's said that when Oliver Cromwell was ruling Great Britain, and they faced a shortage of silver to the point that they couldn't even mint coins, that Cromwell sent out his men in search of silver, and they came back to him and they said, the only place that we can find silver is in the great cathedral, and the silver is in the statues of the saints. And Cromwell said, well, then we, the saints need to be melted down and put into circulation. The saints need to be put into circulation. Because we're too isolated. We've got to be as Jesus was and be out there with lost people. Befriending them. Spending time with them. Genuinely loving them with no strings attached. But not hiding our faith in Christ. And as we engage in that kind of an incarnational ministry, we're going to see them. We're going to see many people coming to Christ. But we can't do it if we hang out in a Christian subculture all the time. It's just not going to happen. We've got to be out there in circulation among the people who need Jesus. Verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. When Melissa and I take our kids to the pediatrician, we walk in and we see two distinct rooms, well and sick. The well room is for the kids who are there for their well checkups. The sick room is for the kids who are sick. And listen, no true physician just, just cares for the well. 
they care for the sick. The truth of the matter is that we're all sick with sin. The Pharisees were sick too. They just didn't see it. They were blind to it. Which is why it's so hard sometimes for people to come to Christ who are religious and moral but lost. We're called to go to the sick. We're called to join with Jesus on a mission of rescue. You know, the creed of the Navy SEALs is, I do not advertise the nature of my work, nor seek recognition for my actions. And so it was very rare to see what some of you may have seen on television this week, a Navy SEAL, a living Navy SEAL, receiving our nation's highest military recognition, the Medal of Honor. It started in 2012 in Afghanistan on a lonely road. An American doctor who was there to give health care to the Afghan people was driving down a lonely rural road when his vehicle was surrounded by Taliban gunmen who took him hostage, marched him into the mountains where he despaired of life itself. His captors told him, the Americans are not coming for you. His captors were wrong. Under the cover of night, the SEAL team helicoptered in. They then traversed between four and five hours through incredibly rugged mountain terrain in the middle of the night. And when they got within a hundred feet of the target building, the bullets started flying. And this is what the commendation for Edward Byers, who received the Congressional Medal of Honor, said. Chief Byers, with his team, sprinted to the door of the target building. As the primary breacher, Chief Byers stood in the doorway fully exposed to the enemy fire while ripping down six layers of heavy blankets fastened to the inside ceiling and walls to clear a path to the rescue force. The first assaulter pushed his way through the blankets and was mortally wounded by enemy small arms fire from within. Chief Byers, completely aware of the imminent threat, fearlessly rushed into the room and engaged an enemy guard aiming an AK-47 at him. He then tackled another adult male who had darted towards the corner of the room. During the ensuing hand-to-hand struggle, Chief Byers confirmed that the man was not the hostage and engaged him. As the other rescue team members called out to the hostage, Chief Byers heard a voice respond in English and raced toward it. He jumped atop the American hostage and shielded him from the high volume of fire within the small room. While covering the hostage with his body, Chief Byers immobilized another guard with his bare hands and restrained the guard until a teammate could eliminate him. His bold and decisive actions under fire saved the lives of the hostage and several of his teammates. 
by his undaunted courage and unwavering devotion to duty in the face of near certain death, Chief Petty Officer Byers reflected great credit upon himself and upheld the highest traditions of the United States Naval Service. The first young man who went into the room was named Nicholas Check. And he was not able to come home to his family in Monroeville, Pennsylvania. He paid the ultimate price for our nation. You know, all around the world, while we go about our normal lives, go about our business, do our jobs, go to school, put our heads down on the pillow peacefully at night, tuck our kids in, There are families with loved ones who are deployed. There are men and women around the world that serve in our military. And in a very real sense, what they are doing is covering us, shielding us from danger with their own bodies. There's an even greater danger than bullets. The Bible tells us that each of us as sinners has a sickness and it is a sickness unto death. It is a sickness which threatens our souls, our eternal destinies. And it is a sickness that we cannot cure. Only Jesus can cure it. And here's how he does it. He does it by taking our sickness, the sickness of our sin, upon himself. Isaiah 53, in a great prophecy about Jesus, says of Jesus that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus took our infirmities and our iniquities upon himself on the cross. He died in our place so that we can be healed. He rose from the dead so that we can live. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that in love, the Savior Savior came to rescue us. That he took our sin, took the sickness of our rebellion against you on himself, paid the price for it, paid it in full, rose from the dead so that we can have healing and life in his name. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you're here today and you'd like to know more about a relationship with Christ, you can know Him. Turn to Him today. Trust Him. We would love to talk with you more about that. If you're here today and you've got questions about the gospel, if you're here today and you'd say, I want to be part of this faith family as we seek to live out and proclaim the gospel together, We want to invite you to come as we stand and sing. Let's stand together.
I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as His beloved child, His very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving Father, and you are His child. You say, I love Him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through His Word, through prayer, and through His people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to Him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where His love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.